Good morning, everybody. Well, y'all thought you were really about to see something, didn't you, that cowboy slips out there? Uh, good morning. Welcome to you. I am starting a new message series entitled The Wild West of the Bible. We're talking about the book of Judges. So open your Bible to the book of Judges. It's in the Old Testament. Let's talk about it. The book of Judges is peculiar. It's dark. It's ugly. Uh, there are parts of the book of Judges I would probably hesitate to even preach or read out loud in church that there are stories that are absolutely that spiritually depraved. It's it's very very difficult book, um, but you got to understand that it's still the people of God. It's in the Bible, and uh, uh, it's it, it's just strange. I compared it to the Wild West, the period in American history when we had this entire section of the geographical country that was absolutely outside of government control. It was. Uh, a no man's land. It was lawless. It was chaotic. It was every cowboy, saloon girl, and you know Native American, you know, for himself. It was just chaos uh, and lawlessness, and that's a lot like the world in the time of the Book of Judges. Now, the Book of Judges in the Bible is considered one of the historical books. There's several books that are just there for history, and so Judges is a book of history. But it's a history of a period in the life of the people of God when they don't really seem to remember that they are the people of God, which is devastating when you understand what I just said. The people of God don't seem to remember that they are the people of God. The people of God don't seem to remember who God is or what God has done or what God has promised. The people of God themselves descend into this state of utter spiritual darkness, moral chaos. It is ugly. It is terrible. And you ask yourself, how could that happen? How would it ever get that way? And I'm telling you, it happens, and it happens fast. The people of God, it comes apart very, very quickly after the death of Joshua. Joshua, who led the children to walk around you know, the, the walls of, of Jericho, and the walls come tumbling. I mean, I mean, that Joshua, as soon as he is dead, that generation after him, they don't even know the Lord. And you ask yourself, how? How does that happen? How can everything, how can the promised land become a, a place like the Wild West? And I'm telling you, it's a... It's simpler than you think to let things fall apart. Judges chapter 2 is where we'll start. I'm not going to go verse by verse through the whole book over the next few weeks, but I'm going to try to uh, uh, hit some of the largest stories and learn some of the greatest lessons starting today. How do do things come apart? Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors, and I said I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now, I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. When the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they called the place Bochim, which means weeping, and they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Okay, just to be clear, they're not actually repenting. They're just crying, and there's a difference. All right? Verse 6. After Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. 
They buried him in the land he had been allocated at Timnath Sarai in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaius. Verse 10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. That's verse 10. Underline that verse. Understand that verse. That verse tells the whole story. That's my whole sermon right there. Verse 10. After that generation died, Joshua's generation died, another generation grew up who does not know the Lord. Verse 11. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up, say the word, judges. The name of the book is? Judges. We're talking about the judges. This is who the judges were. The Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout that judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them. And they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Evil practices, stubborn ways. Weren't we supposed to be talking about the people of God? Evil practices, stubborn ways. How did we get here? How did we get here? Well, remember, uh, Moses brought the children of Israel out of slavery in, in, in Egypt. He brought them into, uh, the, through the wilderness into the promised land. Remember how Joshua led the people after Moses? Moses died. Moses had Joshua. Joshua takes, his, takes over. Joshua leads the people to walk around that city, right? Walk around the walls of Jericho. Walls come tumbling down, all of that. They walk across the Jordan River on dry ground, all of that. I mean, God takes care of his people. God amazes his people with signs and wonders of his power. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And then the people come into the promised land. That's what it's all been about, right? God had said, there's a land I'm going to give you. You're going to live there. You're going to build homes. You're going to dwell there. You'll be blessed. I'll bless you. I'll make you a blessing. I mean, that was the promise. Only the people were supposed to do a couple of things on their own, right? They were supposed to come into the land of Canaan where the Canaanites were. I mean, just understand, the Canaanites lived there, but the Canaanites were wicked people. Even what we know, like outside the Bible, from what we know of the civilizations that inhabited the land at this time, these were really uh, 
pagan, really morally bankrupt civilizations, they sacrifice their children to their false gods. I mean, they literally sacrifice human sacrifice. They had all kinds of moral depravity. They worshiped these false gods on altars all throughout the land. Every high place had a pole to asterisk. She was a fertility goddess, all of this pagan worship. And God just said, when you move into this land, I want you to stay separate. You're not like these people. You're my people. You're peculiar people. You must not be like them. You must not become like them. Remain separate from them. And then the Lord says, you need to tear down all their altars. Tear down all of these pagan altars. Don't leave a single one standing. You cannot allow all of these altars to pagan, pagan gods to be around you. You have to eliminate the altars. Now, I'll tell you, they, they came in hot. If you read the first chapter of the book of Judges, they, they come in hot. They come in, they start fighting the battles, right? They start taking down the, the altars. I mean, they're doing exactly what God said, but, but they don't do it for long. And that's the problem. As it turns out, it became easier just to sort of make yourself at home than it would be to actually fight battles and do what God had actually said for them to do. So the people just absolutely make themselves at home. Help me out, Emily. Help me with my slides. The problem is you cannot make yourself at home in a world that's not your home. You with me? You cannot make yourself at home in a world that's not your home. And I'm telling you, the land of Canaan was their new home, but they were never to become like the inhabitants. They weren't supposed to worship false gods. They weren't supposed to become like those people. They were always supposed to be different. They were God's people. Now, if you're thinking that's just something that happened in the book of Judges, you need to open your eyes and look around you. I don't know if there's ever been a time in the history of the world, in the history of the church in the United States anyway, I don't think there's ever been a time when the church was more at home in a world that's not our home. If you just pay attention, look around you, it's very difficult to know the difference between believers and non-believers because believers just live like non-believers. I mean, we do. Let's just be honest. We look just like unbelievers in every single way. We, we live like non-believers. We get married and divorced just like non-believers. We raise our kids and let them run wild just like everybody else raises their kids. We don't really manage to invest anything in our own children. We spend money just like the world spends money. We entertain ourselves to death just like the world entertains itself to death. Our priorities are the very same priorities of the world. We think like the world. We talk like the world. We absolutely make ourselves at home in a world that is not our home. Now, if you think that's okay, and you're saying, Pastor Tim, that's just how the world works. That's how everybody is. You just seem to get with it. I'm telling you, that's not how the world works from God's perspective. Now, it is how things often work, and it's exactly how it works in the book of Judges, but this is what I'm telling you. When God's people make themselves at home in a world that's not their home, it's not going to turn out well. It wasn't good in the book of Judges, and it's not going to be good for us either. We don't seem to understand what is lost when the people of God forget who they are, or they forget who God is. So In Judges chapter 2, God speaks to his people. It's interesting because he says, you have been disobedient. You have disobeyed my command of verse 2. It's interesting because they started out obeying. I mean, they really, really did. 
They came in hot, like I said, and they fought. I mean, they fought Jericho, you know, and they fought some of those battles, but, but eventually they just sort of stopped fighting, you know. And they did tear down some of the altars. They got a lot of them. And then eventually it was kind of more like every other one, and then finally they just started walking right past them and letting them stand because, you know, it's actually kind of exhausting always to be somehow, you know, fighting a battle for the Lord. It's just a whole lot easier, you know, to, to, to make yourself at home. And, and if you read chapter 1, the way it sort of describes the whole situation, it uses more the language of failure, you know, like, like they couldn't do it. Like they couldn't win all the battles, or they, you know, they couldn't tear down all the altars. It sounds a lot like they, they couldn't, you know, like they, they would have said that they can't. But notice how God sort of clears all that up in verse 2 of chapter 2 when he says, no, you disobeyed. Understand, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. And there's a difference between can't and won't. Are y'all with me? Do you know the difference? Because often in our spiritual lives, this is the trap we fall into. We tell ourselves that, you know, it's just too hard you know, to follow the Lord. It's, it's too hard to live as a Christian in a world like this. I don't know if I can. No, no. no. There's can and there's won't. Understand? There's a difference between can't and won't. And you tell yourself you can't, but the truth is you just won't. Pastor Tim, you know, I, I know you think we should be reading our Bibles all the time, but I can't read my Bible all the time. I got a job. I got a full-time job, and I got kids, you know. I got Netflix. I mean, you just can't. You don't feel like you can. And so I'm telling you, there's, there's can't and, and there's won't. You, you could. You just won't. I can't pray all the time. I people talking about praying every day. I can't pray every day. You know, Pastor, I'm not some kind of priest. I'm not a nun. You know, can't, or won't. You know, you know, Pastor Tim, you know, I've got a problem with internet pornography. I just can't stop looking at it. I, I can't. Can't, won't. You know, uh, I don't believe I can lead my family to be all that active in the church, you know, because my family's busy. We've got a lot going on. Can't, won't. You know? So in the first chapter of Judges, it sounds like they can't, but in, in truth, it's not that they can, it's that they won't, and so God says you're, you're, you're disobedient. Uh, the, the, the basic principle you, you've got to understand is that they were partially obedient. You know, They fought some of the battles. They tore down some of the altars. I mean, don't you get partial credit? I mean, y'all remember school? Like, uh, like I got through a lot of papers, you know, sometimes thinking, man, okay, I hope there's partial credit. You know, there may be credit for something. I didn't do the whole, didn't do the whole assignment. But maybe there's partial credit. I'm telling you, in the spiritual world, you don't get partial credit. You don't get points for doing part of what God said. Partial obedience is total disobedience. God doesn't say, hey, you, you people sure tried hard, and I, I really want to thank you for trying. No, God says, you disobeyed me. You disobeyed me. Partial obedience is total disobedience. I'm your pastor, and I love you. I love the people of this church, but I'm afraid we have settled into something that you see happening in the book of Judges, and I think we need some sober kind of wake-up call here. If I had to put it in a word, you know, what you find in this beginning of the book of Judges, I would just call it half-heartedness. You know what I mean? Half-heartedness. In other words, they sort of 
sometimes lean in the direction of following the Lord, but not full time. I mean, you know, not if it gets hard. Not if there becomes a personal price that has to be paid. I mean, you know, that would be more wholehearted, you know, where it becomes top priority and you're going to do it. If you die trying, you're going you're to do what you said you do. You're going to follow the Lord. You'll die for him. You'll bleed for him. You'll give whatever. I mean, you know, that's the kind of commitment we're talking about. But that kind of commitment is sort of non-existent in the world and in the church today. It's just a lot of half-heartedness. We come to church when it's convenient to come to church. And unfortunately, after two years of a pandemic, a lot of people have found it's just much easier to stay home. I mean, you found out you can watch it on, on, on Facebook and, and YouTube, and I'm glad we're on Facebook and YouTube. But what breaks my heart are the families who have children who haven't been to church now in two years. Like families who just dropped out, and whether they're still watching online or not, I, I don't know. We'll never know. It's, it's not me to judge. I'm just saying there's something devastating when God's people just begin to think that coming to church is like something you just do you know, when you feel like it. That, that, that's half-heartedness. And, and what you have to recognize is that that kind of half-heartedness always is, is, a, is a spiritual poison. And it has to do with, honesty, your memory. Notice what it says in verse 10. This generation grows up, who they don't know the Lord or remember. They don't remember the Lord. As long as you remember who God is. You see, that's what you're forgetting. It's not that you forgot that church matters. It's not that you forgot, you know, that you're supposed to be a godly woman. You don't forget that. The problem is you forget who God is. You forget who he is. You forget his power. You forget how he knows the inside of your heart. You forget the way he loves you. You forget what he's done for you. You forget how he sent Jesus to die for you. How he sends his Holy Spirit to walk you through every single day. Hard times, bad times. He's never left you, never forsaken you. And you forget that. And because you forget that, you, you sort of fall into this half-heartedness, this half-hearted discipleship, which eventually is going to destroy you. But as long as you remember who God is, you will serve him wholeheartedly, radically, and joyfully. That wholeheartedness, it comes not from, you know, trying really hard, but just remembering who God is. Does that make sense? So understand what happens in the book of Judges, because this is tragic, Verse 10, after that generation died. What generation? Joshua's generation. The generation that watched the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. The generation that walked across the, the, the Jordan River on dry ground. That generation. After they died, what does it say? Another generation grew up. Did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. If you want to know how everything comes apart in the book of Judges, it's this. The generation that halfway followed the Lord gave rise to a generation that didn't follow the Lord at all. The generation that halfway followed the Lord gave rise to a generation that didn't follow the Lord at all. I, I, I personally find that really disturbing. Because as I say, I, I think um, at the present moment, the church, this church, every church I know in the United States is, is just this, has fallen into this half-heartedness. 
And as terrible as that is for us, our children are going to pay the price for that. I think about the children, uh, the preschoolers, who now have spent most of their life not in church, you know, because at first the church was shut down, you know, but then the family just quit coming to church. And, and before long, you have these halfway followers who raise a generation that's not going to follow the Lord at all. The, the, the present generation right now, millennials, are leaving the church faster than any generation in history. We're losing them. We're losing them. Because uh, Generation and a halfway follow the Lord gave rise to a generation that doesn't follow the Lord at all. Understand, this is just how it works. There's always this obligation for parents of faith to pass the faith along to their children. If you do nothing else, you must do that. I mean, it's not just about making sure that, you know, your baby gets in the right college. Understand, you can't be more concerned that she gets in a good college than you are the concern that she gets to heaven. Your priorities are entirely messed up, entirely messed up if, if you worry more about the way she dresses than, than about the, the, the condition of her heart. We're Christian parents, we're, we're people of faith, and we're supposed to understand the priority of seeing to it that we raise the next generation to love Jesus, but we're not doing that. We're failing at that. The generation coming up right now is abandoning the church faster than any other generation in history. Now, why is that? I would say this. I would say today's kids face a challenge unlike previous generations. I know it was hard in the book of Judges. I know it was. And I know it was, you know, previous generations always face challenges. Some of you lived through wars. You lived through, some of our great-grandparents lived through depression. I know. Every generation has challenges. But I would argue, I don't know that any generation of young people has ever faced the challenges that this generation is going to face. They are stepping into an adult world that is going to be harder than anything we've ever known, and they're not ready for it. They're not ready for it. Face challenges unlike other previous generations. You say, Pastor Tim, book of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. I think, I think it's always hard. It's just how it is. It's always been this way. Ah, oh, dude, you did not grow up in a world where one out of every ten teenagers identifies as gender fluid. You didn't grow up in that world. Your teenager is. Your teenagers go to school with multiple friends that, that identify on, on a gender spectrum. You know, and, and some of you don't even know what that would mean. I'm telling you, this is the world your teenagers live in, and you don't even understand it. They are stepping into a world that, that honestly, no other generation has ever, ever faced. It's different now, and we're going to have to be a little more serious about seeing to it that we prepare them for the challenge so that they know how to love Jesus in a world that's going to be crazy. Y'all know what I'm saying? This generation uh, has this uh, kind of accelerated maturity, kind of an advanced maturity. They grow up way too fast. Y'all know what I'm saying? I mean, way too fast. Like half of you right now, your laptop goes out, you call your three-year-old over, she'll come over, you know, she'll put you back online, and you don't even know what she did. You know? Like kids in our, like you could get the third grade class, and that kid, that, that group of kids has enough worldly knowledge to run a casino. I'm not kidding. Kids have incredible access to all the information. Do you hear me? They have access to all the information. It's the first generation in history that did not need adults for information. 
If you don't think I'm telling you the truth, can I just remind you, we just came out of like two years of schools being shut down, but kids continue to learn, right? Because it turns out they don't need teachers, they just need a laptop. All they need is the internet. All the information is there. You don't have to go to a library. You don't need an adult. You can Google any question you're having. And for that reason, kids have access to information that in the past kids would have never, ever had access to. Kids now know things. They're introduced to things that you were never introduced to at at such a young age. I'm telling you, they have to grow up really, really fast. They grow up way too fast. At the same time, they grow up way too slow. They grow up too fast and they grow up too slow. Uh, At the same time, you have this advanced maturity. You have this, you know, postponed adulthood. You know what I mean? Talking this morning, but before the eight o'clock service, is some of the old men in the, in the, in the lobby, and they're talking about how their grand their grandkids, some of their nephews and nieces, don't seem to want to drive, and they're scratching their heads about that. Like, what's wrong with kids these days? And I know some kids are excited to drive, but it's it's nothing like when I turned sixteen. Like when I was probably nine years old, I knew how many days it was going to be till I turned sixteen, because I wanted to drive. I wanted to drive. I wanted to get in the car and get out of this place. You know, I wanted to drive. I, I had places to go. But understand, a lot of kids these days, they're not in a hurry to grow up at all. In some ways, uh, adolescence has never been so amazing. I mean, think about it. I mean, I mean kids these days have everything. I mean, I can't, if, if, if I could have just walked up to my 13-year-old self and, and showed him an iPhone... I'd have died. I mean, you know, like the iPhone that now I carry, if you'd have shown that to me when I was 13, you know, I mean, I just remember when my parents finally got a color television and it was as big as our house. Remember? Like I would never would have imagined a a TV would be a flat screen. TVs were as big as a house. And we got a color TV, which was amazing. So I got the old black and white TV out of the living room in my room. And I thought I was, I just thought this is life. This is living. It was this big, screen this big. It had rabbit ears. You know, I know kids are going, what? It had rabbit ears with balls of tinfoil, which I would move around to try to see happy days. You know what I'm saying? And, And I mean, but we got kids grandkids in this house right now, you've got a theater room in your house, like a theater room. Like you got surround sound. You got like, like if you're watching an earthquake movie, you can get a bass response in your living room that'll loosen your bowels. I mean, just <laughs> I'm not kidding. Why would your kid want to get a car and drive? She's in the back of your van living a life like the queen of England. She got cup holders and snacks and movies. Driving down, like she can't go five minutes down the road without starting a movie. Why would she want to move on? Do you understand? It's just prolonged adulthood. And, and, and now kids wait later and later to just sort of move into adulthood. And it's not their fault. This is how we're raising them. Used to, I, I guess we would say adulthood started sometimes maybe at the end of high school, like 18 Probably when I was young, we would say you're an adult at 21. Most of us got married at 21, 22, something like that. Now they say that adulthood really doesn't begin for most uh, young people until the age of 34. 
don't say what. You're still paying your 28-year-old daughter's cell phone. You know, you still got like grown kids on your health insurance. I mean, don't go, what? <laughs> it's our world. You know, I, I, I'm not being harsh. You know what I'm saying? I'm paying my 28-year-old son's cell phone bill. Uh, okay. You know, I, when I said y'all, I meant me. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? They wait so long that they postpone adulthood because I'm telling you, adolescence has never looked so good and an adulthood has never looked so complex. They're stepping into an adult world that nobody has ever really seen anything like and they're not prepared for it. So in the book of Judges, there's a generation that dies and then they're replaced with another generation that doesn't know the Lord think, how does that happen? Well, it's, it's generational failure. Parents, grandparents, as the church, we have a very important job to make sure that, that something gets passed on. And let's just admit we're not, we're not doing a very good job of it. Some of you in this house, your grandparents and your kids, your grandkids aren't in church anywhere. Your grandkids ought to be in this church, but they're not. Some of your parents, and you'd say, Pastor, I can't make my kid come to church. I, I can't, won't, you know. But, but, but the fact is, there's a generational kind of failure, and I'm afraid that we're, we're living this out. Just like in the book of Judges, I'm afraid. So as, a, as, a, as an older generation, I put myself in that category. I'm 57. It, it's our responsibility to, to pass it on. We have to. We have to, because if we don't understand, it's over. The church, I've said this a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand more. I don't know how to make you wake up to this. The church is always one generation away from extinction. Pastor Tim, what do you mean? We had a thousand people last Sunday. We had a thousand. We did. We had a thousand people at Easter last Sunday. Woo-hoo. We had a thousand. That don't mean nothing. It doesn't necessarily mean we'll have anybody here in five years. It has all to do with this right here, the next generation. You know, has to do with them because, like it or not, they outlive us. They replace us, and the world as it's going to be has a lot more to do with their habits and our habits. And we're raising them. We're teaching them now. We're helping them establish the habits which they're going to step into adulthood, and they will replace us. And I'm telling you, if we don't, if we don't raise a faithful generation, we will raise a faithless generation, and the whole world's going to pay the consequences. It's not easy. I can say, I'm becoming an old man, and I can get there really fast now. I can, I, I, can, I, can, I can go old man on you really fast. Like, I look at kids these days, and I think, I know the problem with kids these days. It's round bales. Round bales. When I was a kid, what did we have? Square bales. Listen to all the old people talk now, y'all. We had square bales. Square bales do not put themselves in a barn. How do square bales get in the barn? Teenagers. 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 My dad, we'd haul hay, and then my dad would volunteer me out to haul neighbors' hay. I hauled hay for people I didn't even know. Hauling hay is hard. Square bales were heavy. I think somebody in the early service said they weigh 75, they knew how much they weigh 75 pounds a piece. Well, I didn't weigh, you know, 75 pounds myself. Man, the hottest place you will ever be, unless you're ever walking on the surface of the sun, the hottest place you'll ever be is in a barn loft in August, you know, throwing square bales. But now kids have what? Round bales. 
There is no hay to haul in the summer, and that's why kids don't know nothing about work. See, I can do that, and I actually believe all that. I believe all that, you know. There's something about work. There's something about getting out of it, somebody helping neighbors. You know, my dad volunteered me to help neighbors because neighbors help neighbors, you know. It was a whole way of life that, that we've lost. But, but I also promise you, uh, help, square bales of hay aren't coming back. So that's not going to be the answer. What this generation needs from, my, from the elder generation, they need vision. They need vision. Without vision, people perish, right? They need vision from us. In other words, the ability to see. Now, what you have to see as a grown-up, you have to see your life and understand the times you're living in, and you have to be able to interpret your world in terms of the gospel, but then you got to teach your kids how to do that. You can't just spend all your time walking around telling your kids how it was back in the old days, because I'm telling you, they're never going to live in the old days. It's not coming back. The old days aren't coming back. God is always somewhere in the future calling his people forward. Never, not one time, you find in Scripture where God's in the past calling them back. You know, it's always forward. It's always stepping into something new. It's always stepping into a world that you've never known. This is just how it all works. But but as elders sometimes, instead of offering vision, all we got are flashbacks. I just spent way too much sermon time flashing back to square bales, you know? And that's what old people do, you know? You said, Pastor Tim, I'll tell you what's wrong with the church. All the men quit wearing ties. I preached in a tie. I preached in a suit and tie the first 10 years I was your pastor. And then one day, Martha Mean, God bless her, she's with the Lord now. Martha Mean, the best thing she ever did for, for the world was one day she said, and she's an old lady, and I, I was wearing a suit for people like her. And she said, I wish you'd quit wearing that coat and tie. You were making me hot. <laughs> I would preach, and I would drip with sweat. I would sweat through a coat. I would sweat through belts. It was disgusting. And finally, Martha just said, I can't look at you up there sweating like that. Well, why are you wearing all those clothes, you know? God bless her, but you know, there's still people say, you know, you know, that's, that's what it all went wrong when men quit wearing ties. <laughs> you really think so? Like it's, it's, it's what we're wearing. Cause you know, way back in the day, men wore powdered wigs to church. Are we going to go back to, you know, like George Washington and we could wear powdered wigs, but maybe it was nice when you felt like people dressed up, but I promise you it's not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside that we're lacking. Well, I'll tell you what's wrong. You know, back in the old days, we sang six verses of Just As I Am at the end of every service. We need to go back to Just As I Am singing six verses. Those are the good days. First off, no, they weren't, y'all. Do y'all remember? How many of y'all remember singing six verses Just As I Am? Do you not remember looking at the hymnal thinking, oh, my goodness. You know? Like, I would think, if I go get saved, will they stop? Will they just, can we, st- if I, you know, I would think maybe I could pull the fire alarm and we could all leave, but then I'm thinking, no, we'd stand, if the building were on fire, we'd stand there and finish the six verses, because, you know, it's the best part about not ha- having hymnals now, because Rod don't know there are six verses, to just says, I am. you know, he don't know, man, there were six verses to just says, I am, and, and someone say, man if, man, if we could just get back, you know, to, so that's the problem, those are flashbacks, and, and the next generation, they need vision.
there is information. There is a, a lifetime of faith and learning that our kids desperately need. And we don't ever manage to pass that on. I mean, you can walk around all day complaining because your grandkids got tattoos. But I'm telling you, they're permanent. Get over it. They got tattoos now. They're going to have tattoos. I mean, yeah, but Pastor Tim, they're going to have hepatitis. And, you know, get over it. Get, get, get over it. They're living in a different world, a world with tattoos. You didn't have them. I'm telling you, that's not the problem. The problem is not that, that your grandkids may have a tattoo. The problem is your grandkids don't know Jesus. They don't know Jesus. And I know that sometimes as elders, there's so much we'd like to give you, so much we'd like to teach you, so much we'd like to tell you, but, but we don't always even manage to tell you the stuff that would do you some good. Well, for example, at the turn of the last century, the end of the year 1900, the first Sunday of January in the year 1900, Woodburn Baptist Church had 52 cents in the bank. Came into the 20th century with 50, that's an exact figure, you all. I can show you the records. We had 52 cents in the bank. Now, we had more money than that in December, but the church went wild and bought some fancy hitching posts. True. They rode horses to church. They bought hitching posts and took the bank account down to 52 cents. So there's a generation of Woodburn Baptist Church that came into the 20th century with 52 cents and then planted 23 churches in countries all around the world. Now, how did you do that? Your kids need to know how to do that. That's what they need. And that's what you don't ever tell. That story. Our elders knew how to build things, like things that would last. They built houses. They, they, they built cities. They, they built communities that were fit to live in. I, I mean, the, the generation before me integrated the schools and, and integrated the towns and changed the entire culture of the South. I mean, our, our generation did that. And now the generation coming up, they're, they're undoing that. People don't know how to love each other, and, and people don't know how to look past differences. People don't know how to live in community. They don't know any of this anymore, and our elders don't seem to know how to tell us what they know, what they've lived through, what they've learned, fought wars, went through depression and cancer. You, you've, you've managed to put together marriages that have lasted for 60 years. Tell your kids how to do that. Tell them how to do that because they don't know how to do that. Our kids are on anxiety medicine just to walk around. You've lived through cancer. You've lived through bankruptcy. You've lived through the death of your spouse. You've gone through so much, and your kids need to know how to do that. But you never managed to teach us the lessons that would help. We don't need flashbacks. We need vision. We need you to go back and, and learn the lessons from your own life and be able to explain from the gospel perspective how your kids can walk forward with Christ in a world that, that you don't know and you're never going to live in. It's going to be their world. But they need Jesus to live in it. And it's your job to make sure they have Jesus. Moses died. He had Joshua. Joshua died. He had no Joshua. 
Nobody took his place. And everything comes apart. You're wondering, how can the people of God forget that they're the people of God? How can they forget who God is? How can they forget what God has done? Well, can I just tell you that, that when the children of Joshua you know, moved into the land, there really weren't any more cities to walk around. There weren't any more walls to tumble down. There weren't any more Jordan rivers to cross. I mean, God was going to work in a new way. They were going to have to create new stories. I mean, it's going to be the same God, but it's going to be very different for the children. Just saying, there's a generation right now growing up in this church, and they're going to step into a world that most of us have never seen anything like, and they're not ready for it. They're not ready for it. They need real faith. Not not halfway, not half-hearted, not part-time discipleship. They need real things. They need the real faith. I said, this generation of millennials, they are abandoning the church faster than any generation has ever left the church. You want to know why? Because kids can spot a phony. They know when it's fake, and they're tired of fake. And they know how mom is, you know, in, in, at church and how mom is at home. I'm telling you, we want to blame the kids and blame it all on them, but it's not all on them, y'all. We're raising them. You know, we joke around here like, ah, oh, those kids always on their cell phones. Those kids, man, they always on, always on their cell phones. I talk to the teenagers in our church. You know what the number one complaint of teenagers in this church is when I talk to them? Mom is always on her phone. Maybe your daughter would rather just see your face and hear you say, good job, honey, I'm proud of you, than than have to go to your Facebook page to find out how much you're, you know, 20 pictures of her. I mean, you know? Commitment is learned in a family. We have to pass something along. And man, as I say it, I think, man, I wish I could go back 20 years now and start over. Man, Pastor Tim knows so much today. Well, y'all, when I was a dad, I was an idiot. I made a lot of mistakes and I just want to go back, but I'm thankful that I'm not finished yet. And my son's still out there. And in some ways, I really enjoy this adult stage of parenting. It's different, but. I still have a tremendous influence over the man that uh, my son's turning out to be. And you still have a tremendous influence over your grandchildren, your sons and daughters. We're not done yet. Joshua was done when he died. And unfortunately, when he died, he didn't leave a Joshua. So let me just say this to all the elders in the house. You can't die. No dying until you have passed it on. Until you know that your children and grandchildren will be able to stand on a foundation of faith. Don't you die or you know that. And as long as you have breath, you continue to see to it that they know who God is. Because honestly, in the world, it is really easy to forget. They need real faith. They need real experiences. Our kids live in a virtual world. You know, it's all experience and games and virtual, you know, simulations and environments and, 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 you know, Netflix and Hulu and just TV. They're in front of screens, but they don't live any life. You know what I mean? They've never broken a sweat. They never, they don't know how to live if there's not air conditioning. You know, your kids think microwave ovens take too long. I mean, it's just insane, the world in which they they live and and they don't know anything about what it is to, to take a risk 
you, you've helicopter parented them so they've never even, you know, had a scratch on their knee. And you just need to learn to teach them to take big risks and understand that life is to be lived and that, and that to follow Jesus is an incredible adventure. It's not just like being up the hall, you know, having somebody read a Bible story to you and give you a vanilla wafer. That, that works when you're four years old in the primary class. But man, our teenagers, our college students, I, I want to blow their minds with what it means to follow the Lord. I want to blow their minds with an adventure, the thrill of following Jesus in this world. Do you know what I'm saying? Because if we don't do that, if we don't do that, It's over. We'd love to win the world. But if we don't win our own kids, it's over. Pray with me.